All right, we got to get started. Our pre-show of work from home war stories could have we should have put it all in the show, but I wasn't recording. I am I'm sorry, guys. I, I've been doing a little bit of tech support for family members. Have you have you run into this? Oh yeah. <laughs> it's it's rough for them because like their Wi-Fi networks were designed for just casual browsing. You know, looking looking stuff up on the phone, maybe a YouTube video here and there. I mean, my mom's at the kitchen table and the, the Wi-Fi is on the other side of the house. Yeah. So now they're doing video calls and it's a whole different ballgame. That's something we've gotten down, but other people are struggling with. The biggest fail I heard about recently is my buddy. He's a political science professor. He's had to take his lectures online, and that's a lot for him to figure out. I don't think he's got a lot of guidance from the university. So I recommended some <laughs> microphone, thinking he's going to you know, record a video that he's working on. I asked what he was using to record, and you won't guess this. Um, so he's making it available for YouTube or just for students? How's he distributing it? I think he's up- uploading to Blackboard, the uh, oh, education okay. so software. like an internet kind of style thing. All right. Um, Gotta guess OBS. OBS, that's a good guess. I mean, that's classic, right? Yeah. Um, I'm going to say he's using... He's on a Mac here. Zoom. I'll say he's using Zoom. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's a good guess, too. No, it's PowerPoint. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Excuse me? Wh- why? Come on. <laughs> Who knew PowerPoint could record audio? <laughs> no! So is he uploading, like, 100 megabyte PPT files? It's going to be a giant PPT file on Blackboard. That <laughs> this dude's down to download. download. <laughs> Is his voice just going to pop up on the slide? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Hello, friends, and welcome into your weekly Linux talk show. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Oh, I cannot believe this. I'm cracking up at that PowerPoint story. Well, Wes... We have a really fun episode today. You and I are going to get into some turnkey Linux solutions and then share our thoughts on those types of tools a little bit and some of the things that we played around with. But more importantly than that, you went trolling through the old mailbox and we have a ton of really awesome feedback. So that's going to be a great... I'm like, that's the part that uh, we're going to do the rest of the show so we can get to that part. It turns out we've saved up an excellent batch. A good batch. It's a great batch, you might say. We also have, uh, of course, some community news and all of those goodies. But before we get to there, I'm going to say in the morning over there to Mr. Cheese Bacon. Hey, Cheesy. Hello, everybody. How's it going? How are you doing over there in the Texas? Doing all right these days? Yeah. Getting my uh, 80-year-old father set up on his Wi-Fi network, which he doesn't know the password to. <laughs> yeah. It's been about my story, too. And then, of course, a very hearty time-appropriate greetings to that virtual lung time to the virtual lug. Time-appropriate greetings, Mumble Room. Hello. Hello. Holy smacks. You see all them people in there, Wes? Oh, and Tyler just gets in right under. So hello. Sneaking to, in. This is just in the on air. Of course, we have quiet listening too, but on air, we have 17 folks, 2-Bit, Ace Nomad, Big Daddy Linux joining us, Bruce, Carl, Computer Kid, Neil's in there, Cubicle Nate, Dan the Rabbit. Nice to see you, Dan. Frank's in there, John, Colonel, K, K- Struss, K Struss. I'm going to go with that. Mini Mech. Hey, Mini Mech. Always great to see you there, Stu. And of course, Tech Mav. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. Everybody working from home? Everybody staying safe? You know it. It's a good time to join your virtual lug. Uh, it's you know sort of the sort of the kind of most social interaction you're going to get if you're staying. Yeah, at home. I'm glad we're all here together. <laughs> yeah, we're not socially distancing. Not here. We're physically distancing, but not socially. So while, actually, kind of while I'm making light of the situation, I want to talk about a very serious response that a community is doing to help organizations like Linux Fest Northwest and others that are impacted by the COVID-19 related cancels uh, of events. And they are 
the group is called FOSSresponders.com, and they write, COVID-19 is impacting the open source industry in many ways. If your community has been impacted, please let us know. We are actively looking for ways to help. Help may come in many forms, such as advice on how to cancel and negotiate your event contracts. That's, that, that's great. That is helpful. How to manage digital events, also great, and individual or organizational financial support. So they're all obviously collecting uh, funds through their collective as well, which uh, that's at opencollective.com. You can find out more about that. And we'll have a link in the show notes. But this got me thinking, um, I'm going to look in to see what we can do too for this. I don't know if maybe we work with this organization or we work directly with some events that uh, are are essentially, you know, event bailouts or something. So that way these can maybe come back with a vengeance in 2021. And so, yeah, we have to take this year off from getting together and celebrating in person as a community, but maybe we can do it better than ever in 2021. I think this is something I, I would like us as a team to look into and uh, I want to reach out to them too and kind of figure out what they're a bit more about. Yeah, I mean, we don't want these conferences to go away. No, in fact, I was going to save this for the housekeeping, but while we're talking about this now, uh, Carl, there's an update for uh, Texas Linux Fest too. And is it is it or is the language you're using rescheduled at this point, or is it canceled? The physical event is canceled. We're still going to attempt some kind of virtual presence, uh, maybe just be recorded sessions and things like that. We're working with our speakers now to see who else interested in doing that. Uh, the language you put up on the announcement was rescheduled because we definitely want to still plan for a 2021 event with a physical presence. Does not running the event cost money in a way, as in like sponsor revenue does not end up coming in? Or is the cost savings and not having the event such that the organization as it is around Texas Linux Fest is fine? That's going to vary by event and by venue and, all, sure. and by sponsor. Uh, it's just a lot of it depends. We we got lucky. Our venue worked with us and was able to give us a full refund on the deposits we'd paid so far. Oh, good. And uh, we just plan on, we wanted to just roll that directly into a 2021 deposit. And that's essentially what we'll do with the refund. But that's the way it worked out. We're kind of under uh, act of God type uh, language and contracts at this point. That's good to hear. I'm glad. I'm, you know, because I do worry that some of these events may be fragile financial fragility, and you know what I'm trying to say, and that something like this could uh, knock them out. And I just, I'd hate to see that. Yeah, we're real thankful that uh, for our event, we have this, we're back by the same nonprofit as scale. So we get to lean on their foundation and their lawyers for any kind of the contract stuff, which a lot of us have no experience with. Yeah, that's very valuable. Well, and I also noticed that uh, you guys have set up so that if you've already registered for 2020, that you've basically just rolled that registration over to 2021. So absolutely. Here's to having a bigger and better 2021 then. Yeah, the idea is that uh, people will just keep their registrations and then show up in 2021 in the spring. Uh, if anyone actually does need a refund for whatever reason, we can process those. It's just a little bit of manual work. Uh, and we want want people to want the default to be rolled over to 2021. That's good to hear. Thank you, Carl. I think um, I'm, I'm, going, I'm going with Gusto next year. Colonel, you had a local event impacted as well. Yeah, there's actually two events. One has already been canceled, and the other one is in limbo right now because it's completely volunteer and community-funded. And so if they cancel the event, it basically means that the um, organization that puts it on is no longer and will have to reorganize as a brand-new event. Mm, wow. Yeah, there's been a lot of plans that have been in place for a long time that are getting impacted by this across the board. And you know it's significant when even the corners of our community are being pretty dramatically impacted. It's a it's across all spectrums of life. I was looking forward to getting more information about NVIDIA's plans with the Novu driver. 
there was an event uh, at GDC that we were, or GTC, sorry, that we were going to cover here on the show. And we were going to keep our peepers out and see what NVIDIA had to say. And there was talk in their, in their announcement about working upstream with the project more and all of that. As GTC has transitioned to a virtual event, NVIDIA has not picked up their slot where an engineer was going to talk about Nuvu, um, including signed firmware behavior, documentation, and patches, and, and plans for future NVIDIA kernel drivers. So it was going to be a really juicy talk by John Hubbard, but unfortunately, it looks like it's been canceled, and because only a small handful of the original talks are going to get picked up and recorded, right. NVIDIA's won't be one of them. Boy, I hope some of this information comes out another way because if it's true and if, you know, if this development and work upstream is happening, I want to hear about it. We'll put an invite out to John Hubbard if you want to come on the show and just tell us right here on the pod. <laughs> let's, let's do it. Let's do it. I'd like to know too. I am uh, pretty happy to say that System76 has responded to one of the areas of criticism in the past, and that's battery life with a brand new Lemur. I believe it's pronounced Lemur. Pro, and it starts at just over $1,000, just over $1,000. But here's the uh, big, big pitch for this one, battery life. They're saying you can watch all of The Lord of Rings in 10 hours, read Wikipedia articles for 16 hours, and write code in Vim for 21 hours straight without plugging in. And it's not giant. I mean, it doesn't seem like it has an oversized battery. No. It's a slim, nice-looking laptop. Yeah, it's got a 73-watt-hour battery in there, USB-C charging, and it's 2.2 pounds. The screen is 14.1 inches. It's a 1080p IPS matte finish display. You can get it with an i5 or an i7 or in there. And uh, that i7 turbos up to 4.9 gigahertz. And up to 40 gigs of memory. Which, I'm sorry, what? Yeah, 40 gigs. That's going to that, that's gonna make me pretty happy. Two M.2 drives in there, so you can get up to four terabytes of storage. This is a monster in a tiny package. This is going to be this is going to be a seller. Uh, I think I think this one's worth reviewing. This is looks like it's a really nice, really nice box. It's it it arrives they say in early April. Uh, this one I think is a ThinkPad competitor. I mean, it's thinner it than our T480s. Like a, a good machine to get some work done. Yeah, big trackpad too. Fits fits in your bag. You can easily bring it to and home from work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of what I like about their default disclaimer for this this battery life that they're claiming is that it's it's default level brightness. So yeah. it's not like you're turning your screen all the way down. There's no like hidden marketing lingo in there. Like legitimately, that kind of battery life is pretty incredible. It's got one of those screens too that folds all the way down. You know, all mm-hmm. you can fold it flat. Yes, and that matters. I mean, yeah. whether you're trying to use it in the car or on the plane. I mean, it's way better to throw that way. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, kid. But I mean, it would be. Yeah, it looks really nice. It looks like they've really got something something here. So I want to take a look at this one. I think that one is. I think it's. I think that's the type of uh, laptop they'll sell uh, in a high quantity for probably a couple of years. So nice to see that coming. I think they heard the feedback loud and clear on the previous uh, laptops of this lineage, and said, "Okay, battery life it is." And they delivered, but they delivered in a way that um, is, is I, well, in the areas I find competitive, just my final thoughts on this, I really appreciate full-size USB-A, yes. full-size HDMI, USB-C, and it looks like, looks like it still has traditional barrel charging, too. Um, so it looks like you can do both uh, if you want. It's just a flexible, non-judgmental machine. That's yeah. perfect. When are you going to give me one of those? Huh? Well, I mean, it's not Christmas yet. 
You want to do a little housekeeping there, Mr. West Payne? Oh, please. We've been trapped inside. We got we to gotta keep things tidy. I can't wait to get to the feedback either. That's part of it. Ooh. That's part of it. It's, it's kind of early for the housekeeping, but we got some really good emails. So first and foremost, here at the top of the housekeeping, I want to mention last week's Brunch with Brent. Stuart Langridge from Bad Voltage and Lug Radio fame sits down for brunch, and it was a fantastic chat. He, if you have not heard Stuart talk about the command line and Google search, it's going to blow your mind. It's going to blow your mind. And then you come back and you listen to everything Chris has been saying for the last couple of years and go, oh my God, Chris was right. I know. But no, really seriously, I joke. But it, it was it was a really thought-provoking episode because he has, the, he has a really, really great piece about the command line and the UI of the command line. But then also, towards the end, he has a, such a... a such a killer point about the way we we put our expectations and morality onto others and we judge people for using this distro or this hardware platform, but he just says it in such a beautiful, eloquent way. I invite you to check it out. It's Brunch with Brent, and it's extras.show slash 65. And, um, you know, there's been tons of good brunches, so if you haven't been listening recently... Now is a great time to catch up on that. Yeah, start with that one. That's the great thing about brunch. You know, you can just listen in any order. Pick your favorites and then go back yeah. and fill in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you have a little extra time, you're working from home and you want to join us, Linux Unplugged is live on Tuesdays. You can go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get that converted to your local time. Or you can just add it to your calendar. And of course, our chat room is irc.geekshed.net pound Jupiter Broadcasting. That's the chat room. Maybe you've recently set up a microphone now that you're working from home when you want to join our mumble room. We'd love it. Also, the conversation continues in the old Telegram room. And that's at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash telegram. It's rocking in there. So check that out as well. If you haven't tried out Telegram before, you know, all you got to do is just sign a contract to the government of Russia and then install it. It's totally easy. It's a reasonable contract. Yeah, it's totally reasonable. Now, a, a bit of bad news here in the housekeeping. Unfortunately, Fostalk Live 2020 has been canceled. It was planned for June, but with all of the things going on right now in the world. Understandable. Yeah. Um, it's very unlikely that London's going to be back up to full operation by then, but it's possible, but it's unlikely. So it's just best for everyone for planning purposes that it gets moved to next year. It's unfortunate, but that's happening everywhere. You just have more time to plan your trip for next year. Yeah. Now, yeah, but a good news, Unfilter's back. The Unfilter program, unfilter.show. There's a lot going on in the world that is not Linux related right now, but we don't need to make our Linux shows about that. We're trying to create a space for you that's not really focused on that because you can get that anywhere else. Unfilter is that place. Unfilter.show. It's a reboot. It's tighter. It's quicker. It's more on topic. It is not part of Jupiter Broadcasting. I am doing this on my own. My opinions expressed in the Unfilter program are my own. Just something I'm doing because honestly, the audience so you bought has all forced that. me into it. <laughs> so you <laughs> bought all that bacon yourself. I do. I, I, I finance all bacon. But really, seriously, I joke, but th- a daily, multiple times a day, I'm still getting people asking me to relaunch the show because they don't know I've relaunched it. That's the best it. part because they're so excited yes. when they find out. Yes, it's been really something. So unfiltered.show, there's like three or four episodes out now. And that's really all I'm probably going to talk about it here because I'm, I want to keep that stuff out. I want to keep JB focused on Linux, open source, free software, and I want to keep these shows focused on that. There's other places you can get that stuff. So do. Anything else? I don't think so. All right. Well, then that, gentlemen, wraps up the old housekeeping. All right, before we get into the feedback, uh, Wes and I wanted to just do a little bit on the one-click style deployment of software. You've seen this 
anytime you've spun up a DigitalOcean droplet or uh, there's different ways you can you know, get this here distro or that distro and it gives you a, a, a quote-unquote app store where you can deploy software. But there's some classics. There's some kings and titans in this segment. And the go-to is turnkey Linux. Turnkey Linux, which is roughly based on Debian. There's turnkey Linux core, which is a virtual machine image typically, based around Debian that then you can build on top of or utilize images that others have built on top of. And there's a lot of them. I mean, yeah, kind of all the classic applications you could think of, right? WordPress, a whole bunch of stuff for monitoring, setting up DNS, or maybe maybe even you want Active Directory running. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. a turnkey solution for that. Yeah, there's a the, the idea would be if you kind of all of a sudden need infrastructure. If for some reason you you have an urgent need for infrastructure, you could one-click deploy this VM. It would be, in theory, set up with good practices, which from a cursory glance, it does actually seem to follow. Yeah, I mean, they've got tools and some services you can use, and they've made it very easy to integrate with things like AWS. So they've got a, you know, a link to set up. You can go set this up right up, spin up a new EC2 instance using their pre-built images. It's all open source. You can see how it's done. You can customize and build on top of it if you want. But if you're not particular, right, you don't care, you don't have a bunch of requirements that you need to integrate with for corporate, you're just a, a small business that suddenly needs a, a GitLab instance to you know store some documentation in, this seems like it might work really nicely. Yeah, I could see the other useful scenario being you're working from home now and you need some on-premises resources, like a great one would be an on-premises GitLab instance. Um, or something for notes or chat. You know, you want to stand up a local chat. That's where this comes in. And like Wes said, you can deploy it on EC2 or you can download a VM and run it in VirtualBox or run it on KVM or, or whatever, which is kind of what we played around with. Um, and the idea to me now is funny, like download an entire VM just to run WordPress. Like that seems... It's almost outdated. It does almost seem outdated. It seems like a a, a older way of doing things. But there is a nice sort of traditional management aspect to VMs that I can really get It's behind. a really well-understood problem. There's a lot of rich tooling around it. Easy to snapshot, easy to just make it production grade. You can roll back really easily. You can download new ones. So there's some nice aspects of it. But if you do want something a little newer, there's there's projects that are more built around deploying to cloud instances, other cloud services. Some of these make it so easy within seconds to stand up a Mattermost instance or a Rocket Chat and Matrix, and it's it's really super straightforward. I noticed that the two you seem to bring up first when we were talking about this was Sandstorm, and then was it Bitnami is the other one? Well, that was just in my mind because the the you know they got acquired by VMware last year, uh-huh. so it seems like that sort of prepackaged mm-hmm. Bitnami's word for that is stack. Is a popular idea. I guess that speaks to some of the things we've been talking about recently as, you know, that Linux is as the runtime. It's just this environment to run your applications on. Yeah. But for a high level purpose, do you really care what or how it's running? And then there's Sands. So, like I mentioned, Sandstorm, um, they seem to really be going after um, key things. They have a really well designed website. And they're like, hey, do you want to set up chat? Are you looking for project management? Are you looking for collaborative document editing? Like they're very focused on a, on a, on people that are trying to get work done, which is a pretty clever approach. Fundamentally, all of these share one property, and that is they are one-click setups that are implementing a lot of lower-level stack for you that you never really have any full operational knowledge over. Do you, do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, you can go figure out the systems, and I suppose if you really use this a lot, you you probably have to. But unless you set it up, you don't understand it. 
Well, okay. I think you're going a little further than I. So I wanted to just stop at that level. So if we just, if we just, if we all agree, if, even if it's good or bad, that when you use one-click software deployments, you're deploying an entire stack that you don't fully operationally understand. That's kind of the value, right? Right. I, I think that's. I think. I think that's probably not. Nobody's going to disagree with that statement. Now, where I think the nuance is, is, is that dangerous, or is it necessary? So my necessary argument is such. People will never discover the reason to run these really great applications if they can't get hands-on experience firsthand of how good they are. Like, it's almost not worth learning the plumbing if you never get to use a sink. Right. I mean, if there's just this huge barrier to even try out the software or use it, you know, say for for a week or a month or something, why would you invest all the time to figure out how to, especially if you maybe aren't a Linux user, haven't deployed software before? Okay, so we all agree on that, right? That seems pretty safe. Okay, now here's the part I think is a little controversial. We should be telling people that doesn't necessarily mean they should use something like this in production, right? It's almost like they should come with an educational labeling saying, while yes, this is production-grade software, you could also, it's like it's a powerful enough tool that you could also get yourself screwed by compromise security or not doing something properly or not fully appreciating what exposing something like this to the web does and so the rest of the system gets, gets exploited or I mean there's a litany of issues that once you publish something like a chat application or a collaborative document editing application online publicly that if you don't fully appreciate all of the operational aspects of that machine and now you're you're hosting up to a thousand plus employees I mean I think this is I think this is reckless reckless Absolutely. And I think that, you know, you, you hit on a lot of key topics there. Like, how do we vet the security of these one-click installs? How do we know that our rocket chat one-click install doesn't have something in it that shouldn't be there? I think it's a great solution, like you said, for somebody that's interested in learning or, or maybe checking out new technology. So for example, if I was working at, uh, a university in the IT department and I wanted to check out Rocket Chat, then I might spin it up just for the IT guys just to kind of check it out to see if it was worth it and then do further research into spinning this up on my own uh, with a container and, and you know, orchestrating it that way. Yeah. Well, it's, there's, it's one thing if you're learning or it's a proof of concept. And I, and I don't want to make it sound like these things are bad because I would absolutely use these like you just were talking about. If we wanted to see, hey, could we switch over to Mattermost? Well, let's proof of concept it really quick before we sit there and spend an afternoon setting it up. So here's, I was kind of impressed playing with Turnkey in that if you use their service, you, you have some access to things like backups and migrations. Like if you want to set things up, destroy a server, rebuild it later, you can just restore from their, their, their backups already. And they enable security updates by default. Yes. It seemed like there were a lot of nice defaults. And I wonder if we're accurately measuring the sort of awkward middle ground of between like learners and professionals of people that know enough to configure apt or add a PPA and set things up, but might not know enough to properly configure security or set up a firewall or do know and just don't bother to. Mm. Whereas something like this, if done appropriately, and that's really where the stick the stick is here, may is, take some of those extra steps that somebody wouldn't normally be right. willing to do. Hmm. Now it's only as good as is did those updates keep happening yeah. and is the configuration updated, and that's really where a lot of these services fall down in the sure. long run. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, I want to give a couple of people a chance to jump in here, uh, Colonel. Let's start with you because I think the awkward sort of automated elephant in the room is isn't this kind of what 
system management does, like Ansible? I mean, isn't this kind of what a really good Ansible setup would do is one-click deployment of your entire infrastructure? And I think a lot of people would argue that's a good thing, right? Yeah, so if a service was to come out, say, DigitalOcean, and they provided you basically the Ansible scripts where you spin up a server, you run the Ansible script, and it's essentially a one-click deploy, is that any different than just pressing a button and having them spin up the server? And they're probably using something similar on the back end to deploy those one-click you know, apps. Yeah, although I don't know if we can really compare like an infrastructure provider like DigitalOcean or Linode or Azure or AWS to open source projects online that have varying amounts of contributors and people dedicating their time. There, There is at least a little more onus and, yeah. in theory, resources to sort of continue those updates. But, but I do think there is a core nugget here. Uh, Bruce, you were making the point that this has kind of been an, an issue in security for IT for a while. Yeah, so people who you know, mess around with this kind of stuff and, you know, set up servers to try them out and self-host things or, you know, work in an IT department that's like a one or two man show and they're trying to, you know, find tools to make life easier or make things more efficient. Um, These are the people that need to know what they're getting into. And one of the core issues is that a lot of them end up not knowing what they're getting into. They don't update or patch. uh, They don't realize the security implications of things. They don't keep up on the vulnerabilities that come out for different things. So I feel like we're basically, you know, dipping our whole leg into the the issue of just IT-wide um, security issues, essentially. Yeah, that's sort of been something I've wondered, too. Neil, this argument goes back uh, all the way towards uh, the early days of the command line. I'm curious to know if, what you think, if it's a messaging issue, maybe we should be setting expectations, or if it's something that could be solved with technology, like Wes is saying, is maybe if the systems are built appropriately, they could be more secure than the humans could ever keep it. Well, I'm never going to be a person who will suggest that we can make a system smarter than the people that wrote them. So I, I, I don't think that that's a good, that's a, that's a very dangerous road to go down. But I, I have some experience with some of these turnkey things. Um, something that people may not know is I was one of the, I was, I think, the first person to make an externally developed Bitnami module for, for the, for deploying a, an application in their, um, in their lamps, in their lamp or lamp stack kind of stuff, back before they switched to containers. Oh. Um, so yeah, so the um, the project that I was working on back then, the Nano CMS project, uh, I wrote um, a module for their Bitnami um, one click install application stuff, and it was a, a fair bit of work to actually get it working. But one of the things that I, I think we we tend to forget is that. Um, people have increasingly less time to be able to explore good solutions for what they want to use. And one of the ways that I see these kinds of solutions working out is giving people a taste or the ability to explore and look at these different things quickly to see whether it might fit their needs. Um, I agree that they're actually all very bad at being useful for production deployments. Some of them, like Turnkey Linux, do a few things right to make it so that they could be a little bit more production worthy. But in general, um, usually these things are set up for convenience and not for uh, not for um, internet-facing use. And the idea is that you get a look at this, you can set them up, you can actually use them for maybe small, isolated cases where it's not necessarily internet-facing. The, the complexity is that people keep trying to make the software more complicated, which just keeps pushing forward this desire to have 
um, no knowledge deployment strategies for all of these things. Think Kubernetes, GitLab. Yes, I was just going to say that. I was right. just, I was just thinking that. I mean, Eucalyptus and OpenStack were the first ones that really pulled all this off. And if anybody remembers Eucalyptus, then they'll know why I said that. And there's advantages to that as well. You know, standardization, automa- automation means it's repeatable, it's reproducible, and you know that's that's obviously a good thing in production. Um, so I think, like you said too. In part, it is, it gives access to this software that is so great. Like this free software that has been created that is, that is really, really something powerful and useful for people. It's kind of silly to lock it behind these complicated systems you have to set up. At the same time, as a community, we need to not only encourage people to uh, explore, but then be there to help them and guide them to setting up a complete secure system. And sometimes, it may never come to that. You know, maybe some people just want to tinker and they put it on their land and no big deal. And that, that's great. Well, I think maybe it's useful to compare to like con- the container scene. So a lot of times you might use the official container, but in the case of a project like Linux server, you're going to use theirs. There's a large community of people using that, but it does seem like there's an active community. And with containers, the scope is a little bit smaller. It's not usually a full system. It's a as tightly packaged as it right. can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why I, I feel like the container model is slightly better, but not much better. Um, and, and it turns out a lot of those end up being almost full systems anyway. <laughs> yes. I remember uh, last year during Linux Fest Northwest having a conversation with Wimpy, and uh, currently I run just a personal uh, Nextcloud instance using the Snap. And I, you know, I told Wimpy, I was like, you know, it's still weird for me to use a snap. And this is, you know, kind of diving deeper into desktop usage of, of these kind of technologies and these kind of one click installs. But, and he, and he asked me why. And I said, because I, I didn't configure it really. Like I didn't get my hands dirty. You know, I just basically snap installed and set up a let's encrypt. And then I was off to the races and, you know, haven't really looked back. Now it's been rock solid and I haven't had any issues with it, but. Did I really learn? I mean, I'd set it up before previously, so I I knew what I was doing, but, you know, it's still kind of different for someone that's been using Linux for years and is used to basically screwing it all up by, you know, not not (laughs) knowing what I'm doing and having to go back and read documentation and what should be in the comp file and such. Yeah, I I agree. I I experimented with the snap of uh, of Nextcloud and I had the same, had that same feeling. I have... Um, kind of a very optimistic outlook on where Home Assistant is going with this. Yes, Home Assistant. Home Assistant recently went through a bit of a rebranding. There was Home Assistant and Hass.io. Hass.io is more like an entire OS that includes Home Assistant and a, and the ability to install add-ons. And See, I never, I'm not sure I was ever clear on that, so maybe right. the new definition will be better. So anyway. now it's just called Home Assistant. Hass.io is just now Home Assistant. And, okay. then there, and if you want... What's the old Home Assistant? Home Assistant Core, which is just the core application. Without all the... Without all the add-ons and okay. stuff. Um, but the add-ons are essentially Docker containers that you manage through the Home Assistant interface. And it's everything that you would expect from Plex to DuckDNS to... Matrix and you know, all all the great applications. Wow. Yeah. And it's just in the Home Assistant UI. And I think the reason why I like that is it is implicit that this is really something for your LAN, right? You're not going to put a, a Home Assistant instance up for a 2,000-user company. This is implicit to the end users. This is something you're sharing. We're going to give you the options to keep it automatically up to date with just a checkbox. Nice. Yeah. It's that kind of stuff, and it's all right in one dashboard for one application. It brings it all into one point, and it's done really well. And there's a whole bunch of community add-ons, too, for all kinds of stuff that aren't in the main add-on store. 
It's pretty much every major open source application you'd want. So you deploy Home Assistant, you get all the niceties of Home Assistant, and there's always something for everybody. And then through that, you can deploy these applications on your LAN That's and play nice. with them. Yeah. And I think it's a safe way to do it. They're staying automatically up to date. Uh, I like it a lot. So uh, if you're thinking about doing this and you haven't pulled the trigger on Home Assistant yet, go check out the self-hosted podcast, selfhosted.show. Yeah, selfhosted.show. We got so many URLs. <clears throat> we need to eventually, of course, everything, you know what? We should just really plug the main page. It's all at jupiterpodcasting.com. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember that one. <laughs> that one, never going to forget. If I can find my bill. Um, anyways, so yeah, go check out Self-Hosted. We talk about Home Assistant there. All kinds of great tips. We have an instance here in the studio. I have an instance at home. I love it. I, I just I just think it's one of the greatest. And there's so many integrations. So And it's very easy to get started with. Mm-hmm. And then now that they're adding those add-ons to get all these great apps, oof, it's magic. It's see, magic. I don't even know that I want to use those, but I can see myself just using them because it sounds so easy. Well, like one of them is MB, one of them is Plex. Just oh, yeah. one click install and you got a Plex server, you know? It's kind of nice. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm kind of with Wes here on I'll wait for it all to settle down and them to choose a name. And then for no, they're done now. It That's all? it. No, oh, they're done. They've set oh, okay. the name. That's okay. they've locked it in. They've made it official. I mean, I'm not a big fan. It's all confusing. But do I have to start saying core? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I call it core. Yeah. Well, before we get to the feedback, I thought maybe we'd check in with old Dan the Rabbit there in the mumble room. I think he is probably fresh off of a uh, virtual sprint or sprinting virtually. I'm not sure how we've, we what we call it. How's it going, Dan? It's going good, man. How are you doing? Good. I'm healthy. Are you staying healthy? Not sick. I am, yeah. I just, you know, uh, I I work from home always, so yeah. just uh, continuing the quarantine. Yeah. So you you've got you've already got the Wi-Fi that works. You've got an internet connection that's good enough for you and the wife to be home and for work to still happen. This is what this is what a lot of the audience is struggling with is maybe they only worked from home, but now the entire family's home, and so like they don't have the bandwidth anymore. We have coworkers struggling with the same thing. So uh, thankfully that hasn't impacted you. So I assume then the virtual sprint was productive. It was definitely a challenge because, um, you know, we kind of stated in our campaign that it's important for this kind of product to be working together in person because there's so many stakeholders and it touches like different disciplines and areas of expertise. So um, we did our best to try to um, build what we could. Um, but at the end of the week, uh, it was pretty clear that uh, we didn't build the product we wanted to. Um, there were quite a few times where, uh, because people are in different time zones or, uh, people are unavailable who, uh, have a certain expertise, um, that we ended up working in a direction and then someone would come online and we'd have to throw it all away because it was, it was the completely wrong direction. So, uh, we, we did make progress on a lot of good prototyping, like a lot of good, um, like user flows. Uh, we've got some like little throwaway uh, server implementations and an idea of like how API should look, but we still need an in-person sprint to actually deliver the final product. Yeah. So it's sort of some things done, but definitely going to have to reschedule an in-person event down the road type situation. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, what was crazy too was like, not only do we have all this stuff going on with like, okay, you know, plans totally disrupted. We're trying to do a remote sprint now. Right. But on the second day of the sprint, um, our container that auto deploys Volodoc, like 
was pulling from somewhere wrong and the build server got jacked up. And so we lost oh. documentation on the second day. Oh, so sucks. we had to spend all day like trying to debug this so we could get our documentation back. <laughs> Before you could make any more progress. I bet I bet so many people are having tech issues in the last couple of weeks. So um do you feel like it is not very doable in the setup for just the spread of the team? Is just too much it's because my other thing I would think in the back of my mind is not only is it like all these different tech issues and whatnot, but it's just not a very good time to be focused with everything that's going on. Yeah, exactly. It's like people are worried about like, oh, crap, well, do I need to get to the store before it opens so that I can get food and like toilet paper? And, you know, people's minds are in other places than like building this thing right now. So um, it definitely seems like uh, our kind of path forward right now is to pivot and and not focus on trying to deliver this product. But we're going to work on flat packing all of our first party stuff and setting up like an internal repo oh. and kind of like go a little bit of a different route there. And so we can still kind of work on developing a little bit of a flat pack um, environment for ourselves. And then when like travel starts up again and people aren't worried about getting sick and everything looks okay, then we can reschedule to actually do this sprint for real and, and deliver the product we promise. I mean, it seems clever because that's work that would have had to have gotten done eventually, right? Yeah, exactly. So if we can break it up and, and do like a smaller focused thing um, to kind of get experience to where it'll benefit us in the long run, then I think that's our best plan. I think that right now our focus is making sure we deliver like all the backer rewards and things like that and like fulfill as much of the promise of the campaign as we can right now. Um, and then let everybody know that, hey, we're going to come back and we're going to build this thing. Like it didn't happen this week, but it's going to happen. How's the reception been in the elementary OS community? Are they disappointed? Are they understanding? How's that reception? So far, I feel like the feedback that we've gotten is people are super understanding and um, they've just said, you know, that's good that you guys are staying safe and like being responsible and, and stuff like that. I haven't really heard anything negative. So that's been really awesome. I think people know that we have a track record of delivering on what we say we're going to do. So yeah. I'm, I'm really glad for that. Yeah. And nobody wants their favorite distributions developers to get sick. That's, that's not good. I have one question for you, Dan. Um, do I still get my hoodie? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, um, cool. Yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna work on uh, fulfilling the back rewards, so shipping out like all the stickers and mugs and hoodies and stuff. And uh, we actually spent some time on uh, Elementary OS six images, um, awesome. which uh, ended up being a little bit of more a challenge than we expected because there were some changes to upstream libraries and stuff. So uh, we're still planning to um, make sure we can get those images out for like private beta for backers, and and so all the rewards are gonna stay on schedule. Well, that's very good of you. I mean, that's just additional work while you're struggling to get work done. But uh, I think the community probably appreciates that. Um, so I'm, I guess I'm, it's it's mixed, right? But it sounds like you guys were able to eventually kind of get your heads into a groove that got some necessary work done. And um, I got to say, uh, it was now seems like it was a foregone conclusion. You know, when you contacted me the night before and said, "Hey, the sprint's off," I thought, "Huh, yeah, I guess it's going that way." Yeah. But now, today, it just seems like that was so obviously what you had to do, right? Do you feel that way? Yeah, it was weird when it happened because it, it kind of was like 
slowly crept up where it was like all of a sudden it was like a couple people were like, Hey, you know, um, it seems like it's probably not a good idea to travel right now. And then like countries started locking down and then it was like, okay, so travel is going to be restricted like midway through the sprint. So you don't know what it's going to be like for people to try to get home. And like, this is becoming really obviously a big problem. And it and it just kind of came out of nowhere. And so it was like the day before uh, we were all like, okay, we need to cancel all the flights, cancel the Airbnb, get as many refunds as possible and, and that kind of stuff. And like just focus on damage control. And, and it, this is clearly not going to happen. <laughs> right. You know, crazy enough, I decided, well, I'm all packed up. I'm still going to go out for, for a ride and a bit of a drive. And boy, was that dumb. And uh, long story short, because I documented it in the work-life RV podcast, but long story short, I just was pulling the RV into the junkyard this morning to hook up uh, because I had to get some work done. And as I was pulling in, Hadia said to me, she said, you know, if we had gone to Denver, to, we would be pulling into the junkyard right now today. Wow. As, just as we were pulling into the junkyard, we, this is the day we would have been got, got back and then I would have come down to the studio and talked about the trip to Denver and all of that. That would have been today. So it's pretty weird. But now it just seems so obvious it had to happen. So, well, Dan, thanks for the update. And I'm glad to hear that some work was still done. And I can only imagine it must have been extremely challenging. But uh, I hope team morale is okay. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, at first it was kind of like disappointing. Like, oh, man, like everybody's really excited to do this. And like it's a bummer when you think you're going to go hang out with your friends and do some cool stuff. And then it's like, "Mm, nope, you got to stay inside. And and then, oops, we're not actually going to be able to deliver this. But I think that everybody's in a good headspace right now and feeling like that's okay. Um, We got a lot done. We're going to pivot. We're still going to fulfill that promise eventually. You know, it's not today, but it's coming. Yeah. Very good. Well, keep up the good work and keep us posted on how it goes and future developments. Looking forward to that. Yeah, uh, we'll definitely have more detail on our blog soon. We're working on a blog post right now. So look out for that uh, blog.elementary.io. Yeah, excellent. Also, check out Dan on user air. Just the he's the he's the best host on there. Let's be honest, the he's most the, reasonable right? for sure. For sure, yeah. Error dot show. <laughs> Those other guys, <laughs> we've been loving user air so much. So thanks for joining us, Dan. Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys, let's do a little bit of feedback. What do you say? Ooh, yeah. Jan writes in with the first one on the backup software tips. It says, "Hey guys, first, love your shows. Thanks so much for teaching me so much about Linux. It's a lot of O's there." Uh, and open source software, the, and of course the community in general. I've followed many of your excellent advice. Okay, wow, he's really laying it on thick here. So here's my question. I've heard you talk multiple times about backup strategies and the software the software you're using to take them backups, but I can't remember what episode it is. So could you just please point me to the episodes or just tell me the answer real quick so maybe I could just get to work? Thanks in, advi- in advance um, for your tips and et cetera. Well, Juan, Jan, however you say it, that is a great question. And my current backup love affair is with Duplicity. Just gosh darn love Duplicity. I have it going to two different uh, cloud services. It does the old encryption as a nice web UI. I make sure that my container configurations and my Docker Compose files get backed up every single night on my main servers. And then the, uh, the data itself is a little more ephemeral in this case because it's media um, that is... I guess could be re-ripped or re-retrieved somehow. It would not be ideal, but it's just too much data. Uh, and so Duplicity just takes care of all the configurations. And anytime I change a single line in a Docker Compose file, it gets iterated with Duplicity. Nice. What about you? What are you using for backup these days, 
Mr. Payne? I mean, it sort of depends on where I'm going. Some Sometimes it's just good old R-Sync. Where are you going? I know, right? Or um, R-Clone, excellent, if yes. you're going to go sync to some sort of cloud storage provider. So I'm using that as well. I also really like Borg Backup. I found it to just be simple, easy to understand, and that's, it's got a great name. That's the tech snap in you. All right, good enough. Uh, did you want to make a, uh, a mention for, uh, what was it, that uh, both Alan and... Um, what do they love? What's it called? What's their back? What's their backup program? Bacula. Yeah, yeah, Bacula. Bacula. Now, there, if you want to go down the rabbit hole of backups, by the way, used to run quite the Bacula setup back in the day. I mean, it's an impressive system. I had a I had a real cool system going. Cheese, do you got any uh, backup uh, hot tips? Uh, for Linux, no, I just live just wild. I don't back up <laughs> Linux um, because I can replace it so easily on a, on my laptop or something like that. I do snapshot, um, you know, droplets and things like that that I have just to have backups of those, and then I pull them down. Um, but other than that, not really. Uh, with with my work machine, which is a, a Mac because of the Adobe suite, I just use Time Machine. Sure. Sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. We've talked about back in time before. Yeah. And we're exactly. going to talk about time. Was it time shift? Yeah. Time shift. Time shift. Time, yeah. time shenanigans. <laughs> you don't want to be messing with that with the timeline. That's if Star Trek has taught me anything. Yeah. Alternate reality. Chris writes in speaking of Star Trek uh, regarding Chris's. Whoa. Chris talking about Chris being read by Chris regarding whoa. Chris's comments related to his Mac experience on a recent episode. I was a Mac user for years and ultimately dumped my Mac hardware and switched to GP hardware. What is uh general purpose maybe? Ah, I bet. Yeah, general purpose hardware and Linux. I'm now a happy man Jero user, although I use many distros. Wanted to share a comment regarding though Mac applications that I wish were available on Linux. There's a firewall application for Mac OS called Little Snitch that only blocks inbound traffic and actually <clears throat> I'll make a clarification here blocks outbound traffic I think is what he meant to say uh, and then it gives you a notification of all applications that are attempting to connect to the internet the domain name they're trying to connect to and the port that's very simple GUI and doc indicator uh, and you can find if you just google search little snitch there's been attempts and I've used some of them to recreate it for Linux but nothing comes close he says to the functionality and ease of use for little snitch for Mac enjoy the shows uh, he also enjoyed the post show where we talked about old hardware. I agree. We should do that more. I think this nicely encapsulated a lot of what you were trying to say, honestly, because it's true. Yes. I've used Little Snitch and it's excellent. And on Linux, we have all the tooling, all the kernel primitives are certainly there. Yeah. It's just that we don't have a competitive, nicely wrapped up, rich UX experience application yes. that's been continually updated and developed. Right. There are a couple of them out there. I'm sure people will link them to us, but they're not they're not really at the same level. Although, to be honest, I had to ha- I have not used Little Snitch in years. For all I know, it's unusable on Catalina. That wouldn't surprise me. That's a thing. Let me tell you. Matthew writes in with Life at Microsoft. He says, hey, y'all, I'm one of the Microsoft employees you described in your Linux episode, last episode, <clears throat> which was, I, uh, I think he's talking about our uh, our time with Windows 10 and WSL2. Yeah, I think so. He says, I only started as a regular employee last year. Though, oh, and oh, right. I'm sorry. Uh, I don't mean to, but I just want to give people context. I don't mean to keep stopping. But he's he means uh, when we talked about employees that have joined Microsoft recently, and they've only known this new version of Microsoft. Right. They haven't been there in the in the launch days of Windows ninety five <laughs> and ninety eight and Exchange. Right? They're they've been there since you know after Microsoft loves Linux. Yeah, since Visual Studio Code was a thing, and yeah, all that. So he says, I'm one of those employees. I've been a huge open source enthusiast and a full time Linux user for a while now. When I took my first internship, I expected to gain some experience and go elsewhere. But once I saw how much the internal culture had changed to embrace open source and be more collaborative, I got really excited to come back. It's it's certainly not perfect, but it seems 
magnitudes better than it used to be. <clears throat> he says, by the way, WSL makes it much easier for me as a Linux guy to do some command line things like grep through files so I don't have to relook up how to do it in PowerShell. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'd probably do the same thing. <laughs> totally. I mean, PowerShell seems like it's a great tool for a lot of people, but I already know Bash. Exactly. That'd be great. All right, here comes another one. We're doing a whole bunch. Linuxunplugcom slash contact if you want to send yours in. I'm going to make you read a couple in a minute. <laughs> but I'll, I'm just banging through as many of these as we can. I feel good about this. I've been, I've been waiting to do this for a while. Uh, Mike writes in. He says, I got a mint success story. I just wanted to thank you all for having such a amazing podcast. Wow. <laughs> this is so nice. You're welcome. Uh, I'm a long, no wonder I like doing this. I'm a longtime Mac user who has flirted with Linux for fun over the past 10 plus years, but never done it for my primary machine. Wow. I, I really thought Mac users would be a tiny, tiny percentage of our audience, and yet we keep hearing this. This is pretty cool. Uh, however, now that my MacBook Pro has gone in for yet another keyboard repair, <laughs> I purchased a cheap AMD Ryzen laptop to put Linux and test it out. I had issues with hardware support on this and almost gave up until I remembered your episode on Linux Mint. I had avoided it, assuming it was some watered-down Ubuntu for beginners. But after listening to your Mint episode, I gave it another shot, and I'm so glad I did. Not only did Mint boot and install easier than any other distro, it's been so easy to set up, and Cinnamon has come so far since I last saw it. I'm kind of in love. So while my $2,000 flashy MacBook is in the shop, I've successfully run my SaaS company from a $250 Walmart laptop running Mint. Thanks for all you do. That's awesome. <laughs> How amazing is that? Is that not one of the definitive Linux success stories right there? Uh, when we talk about new users coming to Linux, these are the exact kind of users I like to target exactly. right there. Mike, thanks for sending that in. That's really encouraging to hear that. All right, Sexy Tux writes in with a really poignant email. Make a Mastodon account, please. And, um, <clears throat> okay, I thought we could talk about this one for a second. I don't really use Mastodon much. I may have one, an account. Do you have a Mastodon account? I don't think so. You know, I've definitely had one in the past. I don't know if it's current. And it's, I should check. Uh, and it seems like because I have a Twitter account... That because I am a guy who enjoys some free software from time to time, that I should probably have a Mastodon account. Just like using that same logic, it would seem like as a guy who likes himself a little open source software from time to time, he'd be using something like Mattermost over Slack. However, here I am using Slack and using Twitter. Why is this? This seems like some sort of moral incongruity. And I just want to talk about this for a moment. I'm ashamed to be sitting next to you. It really boils down to the fact that I despise and hate social media for the most part. I don't derive very much value out of it. it I, the main value I managed to eke out of social media it, with a high cost associated with it is interacting directly with the audience. I, I have my bookmark set to just go to my at replies on Twitter. That's generally my interface to Twitter is I go directly to the notifications page. I interact with Twitter there. And then unless I'm sharing something, I pretty much don't use it. Not because I don't like and respect people on there, but there's often other things on there that just send my ADD mind into a rabbit it's, hole that doesn't need to it's go. It's a crazy place. I find it to be of low substance and high drama, and that is the exact opposite ratio that I would like. <laughs> and that just seems to be inherent to social media in general. It's also why I'm not in 100 IRC chat rooms. I'm only in a few. It's why I'm not in 1,000 Discord rooms. I'm only in a couple. I'm not in a, a dozen slacks. I'm in like four slacks. I, I, don't, I don't want any more than I, than I absolutely have to. And I feel a certain obligation to be available, and Twitter is the highest return on my time. 
because that's where the largest network of people is. It has the network effect. So I use Twitter. If I could snap my fingers and still maintain the same level of connection to the audience and not use Twitter, I would probably take advantage of that. But I think we all have seen friends who have very publicly quit social media in this space. Generally, you know, if you're making your, if your career is on the internet, it generally behooves you to be on social media. I think we've all seen our friends quit and then come back. <laughs> Some of them have then quit again. It's just an expectation, really. And yeah. yeah, and it's just, you just, okay, well, I'll see you in three months. It's just the reality of this business a little bit. So what I have done is I try to have a balance here. Uh, if, if I had a Mastodon account and I had an Identica account and I had an app.net account and I had a Friendster account, I would have to be checking all of these accounts constantly. <clears throat> Additionally, thank the heavens, every platform has to have a messaging system. So Instagram has messaging, Reddit has messaging, Facebook has messaging. And if any point I have ever existed on one of these platforms, People are messaging me there, and they absolutely expect me to respond. Oh, you mean you haven't been getting my Instagram DMs? Yeah, exactly. And Twitter DMs and Facebook messages, but also there's the email, right? And then there's Telegram, and there's Twitter. There's a lot of ways to get a hold of Chris, and I just don't need Mastodon. I just don't need it. <laughs> you know, you're laughing, but I really don't need that. You know, like there's Telegram and, and email, and if, if you don't want to use Twitter, those avenues are perfectly fine. Yeah, I, that's great. And and I that's my personal philosophy. I'm curious why you don't have it. I mean, obviously, I got there's a lot there to why I don't use Mastodon. It's no judgment on Mastodon itself. Uh, and if I could snap the old fingers and have the world use Mastodon instead of Twitter, I'd be there. Yeah, I think I agree with that. You know, honestly, I should probably spend some more time playing with Mastodon, and maybe I will after the show. I I don't use Twitter that much. I, I, there are people on there I like, and I sometimes find things of value or conversations that are worthwhile. It's just it's just so much noise. Yeah, you I, use it less than I do, really. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so social media is just not a big part of what you do. Or at least find myself in smaller communities. I could probably do a better job of, of managing and pruning through Twitter, but yeah, I don't. Anybody in the mumble room have thoughts on this? I still, I know, to some people it seems like, uh, like maybe I should just drop Twitter for moral reasons and switch to Mastodon. I'm... I don't find that to be a valid argument because the uh, the whole purpose of these platforms is to communicate with people. Honestly, I would love to see Twitter stay closed source and make horrible decisions and have the world stop using it. So I'm kind of all for that. <laughs> I think that'd be a best case scenario. Right. But I'm curious if anybody in the um, like Dan, do you have you have you thought about this or do you go the other direction because you're trying to get as many users as possible? What's your thoughts? I just went to the App Store and I'm downloading a new Mastodon client right now. Really? So you 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 do kind of try to go to where the people are as much as possible. I, you know, I, I haven't been using Mastodon in a while. I'm one of those lame people that like has a bot that pushes my tweets to Mastodon. Yeah. Right? But I want to give it another chance. I haven't checked it out in a while. There's new clients out. Like, yeah. why not? Let's do it. There Let's is do. also, I like tend to get a little too into things, you know, so like, I feel like I get to the stage where like, okay, I have to pick a server and then I want to know how do I pick a server and like, which one's the best? And I know I can talk to anyone on any server, but yeah, where do I start? And Twitter was just like, oh, I'm already, I'm already there. I do take Dan's point, though. It's like you do kind of need to, like, check in. You have to, like, reconsider these positions from time to time. Yeah, that's very true. Of course, but I'm still, like, in this, I want, you know, to reduce a little bit because I feel like I get so many notifications out of nowhere and stuff from so many places and apps already. It's too much. But, you know, maybe technology will save me. 
Or maybe technology will make it worse. All right, we're going to get through a couple of more here. Mike writes in, I'm enjoying all of the chat on the show about WSL, but I've got a perspective on this I'm surprised you haven't heard elsewhere. I work as a web developer on ASP.NET and MS Azure, and I have to run Windows for this. I do this in a VM using KVM and QMU running my preferred Linux distro, which is currently Arch and GNOME. It seems to me pretty clear that Windows must be more of a burden than a benefit to Microsoft at this point. The OS, as a concept, is pretty much 100% commoditized by now. And Windows offers negligible benefits to anyone except a way of running apps such as Adobe. More than that, Windows is an absolute nightmare. The architecture is creaking all over the place. The registry, the installation subsystem, the file system, the whole thing must be an albatross around Microsoft's neck at this point. They make almost no money from it. Profits are from Office 365 and Azure. So it almost certainly costs them more to maintain than the benefit it now brings. For several years, MS has been facilitating running their own crown jewels like SQL Server on Linux. I see WSL as the vehicle, the Trojan horse, if you like, that will, over time, turn Windows into a Linux-based OS from the inside out. Ooh. Hmm. He says it's not too hard to plot a trend line. We all laughed when they first came out with uh, the name WSL. But we're not laughing now. And to be clear, he says, I don't subscribe to the conspiracy theories about Microsoft trying to subvert Linux in some evil way. I just think this is common sense business for them. And it's just a little too early to make a public announcement to that effect. Just my two cents. Loving the show. Keep it up. Well, uh, thank you, Mike. So what do you think of this idea that Windows is a burden and that it's going to be WSL from the inside out? Interesting. Can you imagine it? Somehow Windows slowly morphs into basically a thin skin over Hyper-V just to run Windows or just to run Linux. I kind of love that Start idea. relying on services inside there. Yeah. You, you like launch Photoshop and it starts a, a traditional Windows uh, Hyper-V VM in the background, sort of like it does for the subsystem now. It's the Windows subsystem for Windows. <laughs> <laughs> does, this, does this mean that we get better game support under Linux though? That's what I'm hmm. interested in. Hmm. Yeah, great question. What do you think, Neil? Is this a long shot? Man, Chris, you know how much I wish this was going to be a thing. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I, I see it kind of a little bit of two ways. The first way is that Microsoft has um, sort of realized that on the server and cloud front, they've lost in a very, very big way. And they just they need a way to um, to add relevance to them as a as a platform company. The second thing is that first and foremost, what a lot of people have forgotten is that Microsoft started out as a developer, um, qual- as a company that made de- uh, quality of life tools for software development. And when you look at it from that lens, the WSL actually is a huge quality of life improvement for any contemporary. Um, software developer, because you need to be able to work with Linuxy tools. I'm not even saying, saying Unixy tools. I'm saying Linuxy tools. And that's a very, very big deal. Um, on the flip side of it, it is also to their benefit that they keep WSL as tightly constrained as possible into what it's capable of doing, because it means that people remain dependent on Windows for the bulk of their of their user experience. And what a lot of people don't get is that Windows tends to feed that that outgrowth of ecosystem stuff. So nowadays, Windows is a loss leader, but it is still a very important component for Microsoft's strategy yes. to make sure that things like Office yep. and SQL Server and things like that remain successful. The fact that Hyper-V doesn't exist with a Linux counterpart is a, it says it all. Like 
if if Microsoft really didn't care that much, Hyper-B would have been integrated into KVM years ago. Hmm. I completely agree with all of that assessment. I think that Windows plays an absolutely crucial part to their overall strategy. And the WSL system, while does make it possible, like you said, to do Linuxy things, will keep people predominantly workflow focused on Windows. Like that's going to be their main day-to-day bread and butter. And then this Linux system is something they can shunt to to do certain things or maybe to use a tool that they are more effective with. Right. And also have a similar system to what might be on their cloud server. And I think it's a very clever strategy. And I think it's going to be very successful for them. I know when I was using Windows, I went into Windows with this in mind when I tried Windows 10 for a week. And at the end of it, I thought to myself, still too much Windows for me. For me. Right. But it, not necessarily for somebody Some else. like that or right. are used to it. Or, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, I think they nailed it. Uh, and I think it's not a burden at all. In fact, I think they've got Windows humming along better than they ever have. And they've got, they've got a real update cadence cycle now with like different rings that you can get into and insider builds and stuff. And, you know, it's not something average Windows users want. But if you're a Windows quote unquote power user... That stuff's neat. The one thing I failed to try in my week with Windows that I really regret is they have a tiling window manager power tool. Oh, right. Dang, do you I still didn't have, try that. Do you still have the 10 partition on your machine? No. Okay. Well, we could, I mean, we could set it up again. I would, I would like to see their, their, their tiling window manager. I think that would be pretty neat. And it, you know, it's kind of funny that Windows 10 got there before Gnome Shell. System 76 is working on it, though. <laughs> but it's pretty funny. Anyways... I know we mentioned it earlier, but this show's live on Tuesdays, jblive.tv. It's 2 p.m. Pacific. No, it's not. It's noon Pacific. Noon! And it's more fun live. Man, you do something for a long time. It's just built you, in. Yeah, and then you don't do it anymore, and you realize, I am a, I am more of a habit of creature than I realize. Right. So it is noon Pacific, but jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. Links to all the stuff we talked about today, linuxunplugged.com slash 346. Go get more West Payne at West Payne on the Twitter and techsnap.systems. Go get more of me at chrislast.com. That's my new site with links to my new projects. And uh, go get more of the show at Linux Unplugged on Twitter. See you next Tuesday! jbtitles.com let's go I like you just rubbing it in there with the Twitter handles at the end just like nope Twitter jamming it down I oh I kind of was huh (laughs) I didn't think about that you're right Uh, what would be what toot me on Mastodon no I'm not uh, isn't they're called toots right they are called toots and that's weird (laughs) (laughs) guy guys I'm getting a little old I'm with you I mean I've got a Mastodon account and uh, actually one of our friends Mr. Uh, Omnipotence Bradaza has uh, set up, I think it's linuxrocks.online. Yeah, yeah. That'd be the one I'd use if I was going to jump on. But, it, but I don't really utilize it. I mean, I, I, I yeah. checked it out. It was, it was cool, but it wasn't – it was just like chatting with everybody kind of in IRC, right? It was still such a closed, small group of people um, that I could still do that same correspondence on Telegram. I mean, I exist on Twitter – 
and Telegram and Discord primarily if we're talking social networks. But I do also have a Mastodon presence on Fostodon.org. And there it's the conversation's mostly dead. It's it's there's not a whole lot going on in the global feed and I get more I get more return being on Twitter than I do on Mastodon. Yeah, I am there absolutely. because there are some people that are exclusively there. But otherwise, I just, I mostly don't pay attention to it. You know what I didn't say, but this actually played a big role for me in this decision was Google Plus going away. Because what you just said there, Neil, about how there's some people that are on Mastodon, so you go, that's how I was about Google Plus for a long time. And so I continued to use it and respond to people and post and continued to kind of try to keep it going and link it in, you know, wherever I could, like on links on pages and stuff. And it, it just totally crapped out and died and went nowhere. And then I realized, what is the point? It's just, you know, I just at that point decided I'm going to minimize my social media usage. And I'm on Twitter. I'm Occasionally I post, you know, things there and I occasionally post on Instagram. But it's mostly uh, just to have conversations with audience, not really to – like I don't go there to like – oh, and sometimes for like – I like Twitter for like breaking news events to see yeah. what people are saying or during debates and stuff. Whereas the other platforms are just kind of dead. I enjoy seeing some folks that I follow, you know, seeing what they're working on, project updates, that sort of stuff can be nice too. Well, I have a Mastodon account, but let's face it, there's only so much time in the day and you can only be on so many platforms and really put your time into it. That's just it, Rocco. If I was going to do a Mastodon account or, or something else, uh, I think I'd, I'd want to do it the right way. I'd want to try to be active there. And I'd, I, w- I mean, I know some people like Dan want to do bot posts, but I'd want to do <laughs> unique individual posts for each platform because usually they have different restrictions and limits and you could format posts differently and, you know, it tweets you different than a tweet. You. Yeah. How messed up would it be if it turned out in order for a social network to be successful, it needs a little bit of that evil algorithm, pushy, all kinds of put crap in your face so that you want to clickbait stuff like is that what it's missing? Is that it's like yes. pure and, and so that's why nobody uses it? Oh, yes. man. That's pretty much it. <laughs> oh, no. no. The only other platform that is even remarkably successful that doesn't have this is Slack, and that's because it has corporate force function. Yeah. yeah. Like, if you, if you, I wouldn't be on Slack at all if it weren't for the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 <laughs> individual workspaces that force me to be there. Yeah, that's just it. Oh, my gosh. So, Dan, what you're essentially saying is that social media inherently has to be evil. We need a little bit of evil in there, I guess. <laughs> just a little I, bit. I don't think it, it's not. So, a like, dash? it's important that the algorithm isn't necessarily about being evil or good or whatever. It's about enabling discoverability about related people, um, interests, and things like that. It can be bent towards evil, as Facebook and Twitter have done, but it can also be used as a way to help people discover each other, like how Google Plus used to do it. Yeah, you got to find each other. Maybe it doesn't need to be like lawful evil, but at least like chaotic good. Like it can't be like lawful good. (laughs) 